Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. Welcome back. This is 5.3, the day of the Lord, or on why God is not a cosmic pyromaniac. Now, we're almost to our last episode, so I suppose it's time once again to talk about the end of the world. Yippee! In this episode, I want to explore 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. There, as in many passages in the Synoptic Gospels and in 2 Peter, Paul talks about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a popular topic, and it's a popular expectation in the Old Testament, and what it refers to is essentially the day of judgment. The day when God judges all people according to the lives that they've lived, and where all things are laid bare before the justice of God. In this episode, we're going to compare Paul's depiction here in 1 Thessalonians with Jesus' own language in the Synoptic Gospels concerning the destruction of the temple. And then we'll learn how Jesus uses apocalyptic language to speak in code in a dangerous imperial context in which sedition was crushed with the iron fist or with the terror of the cross. We'll see how Cosmic destruction language in the Bible does not refer to the end of the space-time cosmos, but rather refers to the judgment of God. In the Old Testament, it refers to the judgment of the nations, and in the New Testament, it refers to the judgment of all peoples before the judgment seat of God. So let's hear from the word of the Lord, from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, Brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day, who do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like those others who are asleep, but let us be awake and let us be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Essentially, this text is exhorting the Thessalonians to live their lives in the preparation for the day of judgment. While we are saved by grace through faith, every Orthodox Christian denomination, whether it's Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant, all of them hold to the judgment according to works. For Christians, 
the faithfulness of Christ on our behalf and our faith in Christ, that ensures that our sins have been forgiven through his death and resurrection. And that there is, as Romans 8 says, no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ. This, however, does not create a situation in which Christians can then live in sin in a lawless state perpetually. As Paul says earlier in the book of Romans, in chapter 6, verses 15 through 18, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin, but you have now come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin, and you have now become slaves to righteousness. Likewise, as we saw earlier in Galatians 5 verse 6, we learn that saving faith is always alive. It's always, as it says, working through love. And that, as Philippians 2 verse 12 says, we are to work out our own salvation with fear. And here, fear means reverent awe, reverent respect for God, with fear and trembling, because God empowers us to pursue this work of holiness for his good pleasure. Many, because of the images of the book of Revelation about fire and brimstone at the end times, many will read texts like 1 Thessalonians 5, and they'll focus on terms like darkness and destruction, and they'll assume that the day of the Lord is a reference to the immolation of the world by God, who acts as a sort of cosmic pyromaniac. Yet, when we learn to rightly read these types of texts in their appropriate biblical context and genre, we actually come to realize that images like stars falling from the sky and mountains bleeding and the destruction of the world by fire these were not references to the forthcoming torching of the earth by God on the last day, but these were actually a common way that ancient Jews spoke about major social events, cultural events, political events that were about to occur, and events that would change world history. Likewise, images of destruction and fire, these were often used in Jewish texts to refer to the purifying fire of God's holiness, a holiness which lays us bare so that we're unable to hide our sin from before a holy, all-knowing, omniscient God. I want to turn to two texts to illustrate the use of apocalyptic destruction language in the Bible and just to demonstrate how we are rightly to read these sorts of texts if they don't refer to the cosmic destruction of the earth. Ultimately, what we'll come away with is what we saw before, that the God who created all things and who pronounced all things very good in Genesis 1.31 is not intent on ruining the world by turning it into a heap of rubble as a result of his righteous anger. God's aim is not ruin, but redemption. 
not complete destruction, but new creation. To begin, let's hear the word of God from Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples, and they came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came up to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus here is using a Jewish tradition of cosmic language to talk about the judgment that's going to come on Israel, a judgment which will be experienced through the destruction of the temple. This is the immediate context. And the destruction of the temple in history actually did occur many years later in AD 70. In this passage, when Jesus goes on to talk about things that sound like the end of the world, he is actually using a genre called apocalyptic, which uses destructive hyperbole to express a forthcoming major world event that will have catastrophic consequences. Most of the time when I hear this passage preached or taught, it's a sermon about the end times and the destruction of the planet, and it doesn't even mention the temple. It makes sense, too, if you read the text sort of expecting it to be already about the end of the world. That's what it seems to talk about. But when Jesus talks about nation rising against nation, famines, when Jesus says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, all of that sounds literal. It sounds like the end and the destruction of the cosmos. But when we read that stuff against its Old Testament background, we see what's really going on. The Old Testament passages like this that Jesus quotes come from prophets like Joel and Isaiah. And we see that this kind of thing happens frequently. And it's never, never describing the end of the world. Never. But rather, it is always describing the judgment of God. And usually, it's describing the judgment of God against the nations, the nations who are oppressing and opposing Israel. In fact, that very line, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That very line that Jesus quotes is taken from Isaiah 13.10 and Isaiah 34.4. Now, if you read Isaiah 13 and if you read Isaiah 34, it becomes totally apparent that both passages are talking about God's judgment against Babylon, God's judgment against the nations. The shocking thing here is that Jesus uses that passage, which in the Old Testament referred to the judgment of Israel's enemies, and he turns it back around so that it's directed toward Israel herself. And Jesus is saying Israel will be judged. And Jesus delivers this prophecy in the context of a discussion about the temple while Jesus is standing in the temple precinct. Elsewhere, 
in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 13, we find out that, again, the day of the Lord and this destruction-type language is used to focus the reader on the reality of judgment and not the end of the space-time cosmos. And you can see this clearly when you read the text closely, not already expecting it to be about the end of the world. So hear that word of God. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. He doesn't wish that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and that you lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, now and to the day of eternity. Amen. On the surface, 
if you're the type of person who's inclined to look for the pyromaniac destroyer god in scripture, you're going to focus on phrases like, the heavens will pass away, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. However, did you notice anything else in the passage? Anything that might help to set that sort of language in context? Listen to verse 7 again. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It says that the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire. Is heaven to be destroyed too? You see, if you read a bit further in verse 7, what you'll find is that the phrase heaven and earth is used to express totality. It means everyone, everywhere, without exception. It's like the contemporary colloquial expression, I swear by everything on heaven and on earth. It is meant to express comprehensiveness. And what's more, the point of fire here is clearly for judgment. It's clearly for the destruction of the ungodly. Fire, symbolizing judgment, as it often does in scripture, represents the sovereign, perfect judgment of God that searches heaven and earth to make sure that every human being stands before the perfect justice of God on the last day. Verses 8 through 10 show us that the catastrophic language is serving a judgment motif, not a cosmic destruction teaching. Note that in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The focus is clearly aimed at salvation from sin. It's clearly aimed at God's judgment of sin. God does not desire to destroy the earth, but to redeem it and to justly judge it. Salvation is real, but so is judgment. And the biblical authors use the terrifying language of destruction to emphasize the seriousness, the comprehensiveness of judgment. Even more revealing, though, is verse 10, where the author tells us that the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And you know, it becomes very evident here that we are dealing with an apocalyptic piece of literature when we have this language of burning up and even of dissolving. But then in the very next part of the sentence, the earth is back so that the works that are done on it will be exposed. But wait! I thought everything was dissolved. I thought the whole thing was burnt up. Ah, yes. The idea is not that the earth explodes and we are sort of, you know, floating through the Milky Way galaxy naked waiting to be judged. The intended sense is to present a sobering reality. The purifying fire of God's judgment lays everything bare and no one can escape his justice, and his judgment. Therefore, since this is the reality, 
let us flee to Christ. Let us be found in Christ. It's in him alone that we have a righteous standing with God. It's through faith alone in him that we can stand justified before a holy God. Let us be found in Christ. Let us be obedient to his will. Let us cast all of our sin and all of our shame on him. Let's put our full trust in his faithfulness. But let us not be content with ourselves alone. Let's call others to the resurrection power of the gospel. Let's call the world to the good news of new creation and redemption for all creation, for all peoples. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.